Well, good morning. If you would, please turn with me to Mark chapter 9. I was looking up in my notes, and I, we started going through Mark's gospel, I think it was back in October. So, I mean, what is that, 10 months now? 11 months, maybe? We've made it to chapter 9 today, though. So, here we are in Mark 9. As I was working through this text, I was reminded of a trip Artina and I did when we went out west traveling to a bunch of different national parks. And uh, we were going through Montana and we were coming up on the west side of Glacier National Park. The east side was on fire so we couldn't get all the way through. But we at least got to drive up into the park. Uh, And as we were driving along, I'd never been to Glacier before. Uh, Artina had, but I hadn't. And it was remarkable that the bare rock on the side of the mountains and the sheer drop-offs to your certain death if you went off the rails. Uh, It it was incredible. Just all the beauty of the mountains. They were so tall. Uh, There there was beauty and there were hazards all around us. Uh, And we're in a section of Mark that is full of hazardous beauty. Uh, Just last week, we saw Peter say of Jesus... You are the Christ. Wow, incredible. God has sent his Christ into the world. And then Jesus turns around and says that the Christ must suffer many things and die. Think about the disciples. They, for themselves, and we, we saw this uh, just last week, they're, they're called to discipleship. They're going to be disciples of Jesus the Christ. And Jesus says the cost of following him is their lives. (laughs) Beauty and hazard lies all around them. And today, we're going to read about the transfiguration of Jesus. And here, we'll see another vista of incredible beauty and more hazard. So let's read this text together. We'll be reading in Mark chapter 9, verses 1 to 13. Mark 9, and he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. 
And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we confess that you are great. You are the maker of the heavens and the earth, and we are your creatures. We are the workmanship of your hands. And your word says that every single one of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We've all turned to our own way, Lord. And this morning, as your people, the sheep of your flock, we bless you for sending your spirit to call us back. That the shepherd of our souls has called us by name, and we have heard his voice, and you have brought us home, Lord. I pray that this morning, as we look into your word, I pray that the morning wouldn't pass without us seeing your glory here. Help us, please, Lord. Give us a vision of your glory, that we would be sustained in this day, and that we would glorify your holy name. It's in all, all of this that we ask. We ask it in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. The main call of this text for us this morning is to listen to Jesus, as the Father said here, to listen to Jesus, the glorious, beloved Son of God and suffering Christ. In verses 1 to 8, we'll see the call to listen to the beloved Son. In verses 9 to 13, we'll see the call to embrace the suffering Christ. Let's look at the call to listen to the beloved Son. Now, verse 1 is a passage that has been notoriously difficult to understand and give an interpretation to. Jesus says, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And this is at the end of Jesus' teaching on the call to discipleship, the fact that it will cost us our lives. And he speaks about the Son of Man coming and the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. And he says then that there are people who are standing around listening to him who will not have died before they uh, hear, before they see the, the kingdom of God after it's come with power. So what is Jesus getting at here? I think this verse is a tie-in from what's just been said to what happens next. Uh, the reason I say that is because it's at the end of what's been said, but in the Gospels, the, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those three Gospels, where the transfiguration is told us, there is, in every one of those, the transfiguration follows right on the heels of that statement. A timestamp is given, and, and here, especially for Mark, who, although he rushes along, he doesn't always give us a lot of specifics, but here he's telling us specifically, six days later, this event takes place. I think that's intentional. Uh, I think here, this coming of the kingdom, uh, they, these disciples who are there, these three disciples, they get a glimpse of it. Uh, they, they get at least an immediate partial fulfillment of this promise in the transfiguration. And I think they'll probably get even more of it when they see the resurrected Jesus standing before them. This is similar to what we saw earlier when Jesus says at the beginning of Mark's gospel, in verse 15 of chapter 1, 
Jesus says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Well, how is the kingdom of God at hand? There, I argued, that I believe the reason the kingdom is at hand is because the king is there. The king of that kingdom has arrived. And so the, king, the kingdom is at hand, though it's not yet what it will be. And there is so much that is yet to happen. Uh, even so here, I believe that uh, the, the kingdom is seen in power through Jesus as he's transfigured. Our passage here, as we look at this now, uh, in verse 2, tells us that after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, led them up a high mountain by themselves. Uh, so they followed Jesus. The other disciples stay at the base camp at the bottom, I suppose. And while they are up on the mountain, Jesus is transfigured before them. His clothes turn whiter than white. Uh, now, regularly in Scripture, when we see white clothes, it's often a sign of glory, of purity. Angels are clothed in white. In Revelation, we see the saints who have been martyred are given white robes. It's often a, a picture uh, of glory and purity. Uh, Matthew, in his gospel, notes as well that Jesus' face shines when he is transfigured. Now, this alone would be an astonishing experience to see that. But it just keeps getting better. Next, all of a sudden, Moses and Elijah are there speaking with Jesus. Now, how do they recognize as Moses and Elijah? I don't know, but they know that Moses and Elijah are here speaking with Jesus. The disciples are completely besides themselves here. Uh, Peter goes on to suggest, well, maybe we'll make some tents. Let's make a tent for you, Jesus, and a tent for you, Moses, and a tent for you, Elijah. Uh, and Mark says this, because they were terrified. They, he didn't know what to say. Uh, he's just saying something. You know, good old Peter, he's quick on the tongue. He's often quick on putting his foot in his mouth, too. But we can imagine that they would be beside themselves in this kind of an experience. Uh, but there's even more. As they're here, a cloud descends over them, and they are enveloped in a cloud. And there's a voice that comes and says, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And then in a moment, verse 8 tells us, there's nobody there but Jesus. The cloud is gone. Moses and Elijah are gone. The disciples are there with Jesus alone. Now, I have to be honest. I have been intimidated by this passage. <laughs> Such an incredible, majestic passage that uh, I know I'll never do justice to all of what's here. But I want to share with you what I have seen as I've given myself to this text. In this event, in this moment, first, there is glory and confirmation here. Jesus, as he's transfigured, he is glorified before his disciples. And he is commended by God. Uh, perhaps this is the kind of radiance of glory that John sees in Revelation chapter 1 when Christ is before him. Or in the picture of Jesus as he comes back on the white horse in Revelation 19. Uh, God gives a foretaste of future coming glory here. Now I think this is important at this point because Jesus has just told them that although he's the Christ, he will be the suffering Christ. He will give his life in death. 
And the disciples, although they're his followers, they themselves are going to face persecution and death. Now, I have to imagine, if I were the disciples at that moment, my head would be spinning. What do you mean, Jesus? I don't get this. How can this be? And uh, perhaps they could begin to have doubts. Is he really the Christ? I don't know. They're, they're wrestling through these things. Peter certainly didn't get it. Uh, Jesus calls him Satan for saying, this will not happen. Uh, what's going on in their minds? I have to imagine that this moment for them must have solidified in their hearts a determination of who Jesus is. Certainly, this is the Christ. God speaks from heaven and says, this is my beloved son. Even if the Christ must suffer, he is God's son. He's there transfigured before them. I think that must have settled in their mind the identity of Jesus. Now for us, the reality is that life in this world is hard, isn't it? Sometimes it's exceedingly hard, more painful than we might have guessed. I think this passage would invite us to set our hearts on the glory of Jesus to get us through. The disciples, they needed this view of Jesus for them to keep going. Uh, we need to see Jesus as well in the hardship of our life. The greatness and the eventual public victory of Jesus will bring his vindication on the world scene, and it will bring our vindication as his people. When he comes in the glory of his Father, then all things will be made right. Beyond that, in this passage, there is a picture of continuation and further revelation. Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2, says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Here on the mountain, Moses and Elijah talk with Jesus. We know God gave the law to his people through Moses. And Elijah, that titanic figure in 1 Kings and the first part of 2 Kings, he was in many ways the quintessential pre uh, prophet. He came and he preached against the wicked kings of Israel, especially Ahab. And he brings God's law to bear in calling God's people to repentance. Uh, there is perhaps more written about him in the history of Israel than any other prophet. Maybe Elisha comes up on a close second. Uh, he, is, uh, he comes in. Uh, we have both Moses and Elijah here. These are two great figures of God's revelation and God's revelation applied to his people. Luke's gospel notes that as they're talking with Jesus, they speak about his departure. The word there literally means his exodus. They talk with him about his future crucifixion. Jesus has already expressed a rock-solid certainty of his need to die as the Messiah. We see that after he rises, the disciples get it. The Christ had to die. This is how it had to happen. What is so confusing to them right now becomes clear after the fact. And as you go through the book of Acts, you see it again and again, that the Christ must suffer. It had to be that way. And here, Moses and Elijah, as they speak with Jesus, they confirm 
what he already knew. That that is the calling, the vocation of the Messiah. And here, in the midst of this cloud as it comes, a voice from heaven calls to these men and tells them to listen to Jesus, the beloved Son. While there was revelation of God and of his will through Moses and Elijah, the disciples are called here to listen to Jesus. Jesus is in line with Moses and Elijah and is the fulfillment of what is forecasted there in them. Jesus is God in the flesh, God's Son, and so he perfectly reveals God to us. He's not at odds with the Old Testament. The New Testament makes so clear that the Old Testament is the foundation on which it's built. He's not at odds with Moses and Elijah. They're not having an argument up on the mountain, but rather he is the fulfillment and furtherance of what God has revealed. The call to them is every bit as applicable to us. We should listen to him. We should listen to Jesus. Take the words of Christ, also called the word himself, as the very words of God. Accept him, accept the message about him as being commissioned by God himself. To reject the words of Jesus and the words of all the scripture that point to him is to reject God himself and his word. We should listen to Jesus. Another thing we see here in this passage is that there is God's glorious presence here. God's glory and his presence are on display here. Notice the location. You know, locations are important in the Bible. As you're reading along, see where they're at and what they're doing. Those can be important for understanding what's going on. It says that they are on a high mountain. Now, mountains, if you do a study of mountains throughout Scripture, you'll find out that mountains are very important in the Bible. God uses mountains quite a bit. You see Mount Sinai, where God... Uh, places the burning bush where Moses sees and where God brings the people of Israel back and God gives his law to Moses on the mountain. And you think of another mountain. How about Mount Zion? This is the place where the temple is built. When the tabernacle gets changed over to the temple and it's solidified in one place, it's on a mountain. And the temple is there. And in both those cases, God is revealing himself. He's showing his presence to his people. It's often on a mountain that God reveals himself to his people. And here, as he reveals himself further in his son, he speaks to his son's identity. There's even more here. Notice the cloud that comes. Uh, this isn't just the morning mist that settles. This is a significant cloud. The cloud of God's glory falls on the meeting place in the Old Testament when Moses met with God at falls on the tabernacle, which shows his glory has come to abide with his people. And once the temple is made, his glory descends on the temple. And it shows that his glory and his presence and his power is there with his people. And here, the cloud returns. There is just a simply heartbreaking moment in the book of Ezekiel. God's people have given themselves over to idolatry again and again. They have worshipped that which is not God. They have turned aside to Baal. They have prostituted themselves to the foreign gods around them. They have turned their back on God. 
And Ezekiel gets this heartbreaking vision from God of God's glory presence on the temple of Jerusalem, lifting up and going out. And God's people continue to whore after false gods and give themselves over and give themselves over. And you see the glory cloud continue to depart. Imagine that. God's presence and his power leaving his people. There isn't much more heartbreaking than that. But here, on the Mount of Transfiguration, we see the cloud of God's glory, his presence descend with his people. And it's in Christ. The declaration is that Jesus is the beloved Son of God. God's presence and his power is there in Christ. In a new way. Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 2 that in Christ the fullness of God's presence was pleased to dwell. God came in Christ. Jesus himself says when they're looking at the glory of the temple that's there, he says, tear this temple down and in three days I will rise it up again. He's speaking of himself. Jesus is the presence of God with his people. He is the glory of God with his people. And if you are in Christ, then he is the power of God for you. His power working on your behalf through this Jesus. God's glory is on display through Jesus and his presence is there. No wonder John would say in John 1.14, and the word, speaking of Jesus, became flesh and dwelt. That word there is tabernacled. And he tabernacled among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In Jesus, the glory and the presence of God was on full display, and his disciples got to see a glimpse of that on that day. I don't think they ever got over this moment. Peter employs this moment as he is arguing against false teachers in 2 Peter. I'll just read it shortly in um, 2 Peter chapter 1. He's about to turn and eviscerate the false teachers in chapter 2. Uh, verse 16, 2 Peter 1. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths. Steve earlier said, we're not making this up. That's basically what Peter's saying here. We didn't, devise, didn't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Uh, Peter's going to go on. He's going to use this in his argument against the false teachers. Peter saying, we didn't make this up. We were right there. We saw it with our own eyes. Notice the description of Jesus there. Peter uses words like power and majesty, glory and honor. In the transfiguration, Jesus uh, imbues all of these things. This 
glorious moment in which the cloud of God's presence descends on the mountain points to the fact that God dwelt among us in Jesus. And this whole moment, back in Mark chapter 9 now, this whole moment is so rich with meaning. It tells us so much about who Jesus is. The disciples get to see this glorious view of Jesus for just a brief moment. And then the vision's gone, the cloud's gone, Moses and Elijah are gone, and things go back to normal. I mean, as, as normal as normal can be when you're with Jesus. The declaration that Jesus is the Christ, and now the declaration in his transfiguration that he's the Son of God, this is all part of this climactic moment in the book of Mark. Jesus' teaching and miracles and exorcisms all pointed to who he was. We've been seeing that throughout Mark's gospel. He's now revealed as the Christ, as the Son of God, and soon, very soon, we're going to see Jesus begin to turn his face to Jerusalem. His ministry very soon will be turning away from Galilee and towards Jerusalem, where he will go and complete his ministry. And we see a bit of that already uh, as we turn now to verses 9 to 13. This will be our last point and a shorter point. I want to embrace the suffering Christ. We'll see second here. As they descend back down the mountain, Jesus tells them to keep this quiet until after he's risen from the dead. Now they actually obey Jesus. This is maybe the first time in Mark's gospel where, where Jesus tells somebody to be quiet about something he's done. And they actually listen. Uh, they don't tell. Uh, Mark tells us that they keep it to themselves as they're puzzling what this rising from the dead business is all about. Jesus has told them plainly about his death and resurrection already. And here he mentions his resurrection again. And they don't get it. We've been seeing that all along. They have so much, they understand so much, and yet they don't get it. These three disciples now know more than anybody else about who Jesus is, but they still don't get it. They don't got their minds around it yet. They're still puzzling over what this rising from the dead is about. And on their way down the mountain, they've got a question for Jesus. I'll read that again in verse 11. And they said to him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? They asked Jesus a question. Maybe this is because they've just seen Elijah on the mountain. Uh, maybe that's why they're asking this question. The scribes probably got this from the last couple of verses of Malachi, which talks about Elijah coming before the awesome day of the Lord. Jesus affirms what the scribes have said. He says, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And then Jesus turns the conversation back to his own suffering. He says that Elijah did, in fact, come, and they've done to him whatever they pleased. Uh, and, and Jesus uh, is saying here in, Mark, in Matthew's gospel, he points out that the disciples understand that he was talking about John the Baptist at that point. Elijah came and was mistreated. He was beheaded. And the Son of Man will suffer much and be treated with contempt. Now what a strange way for God to restore all things. Elijah's coming back to restore all things, right? The restoration's coming. But Elijah's going to be beheaded. The Son of Man, the Christ, the Son of God, is going to be killed. What a strange way to restore all things. I'm telling you, man would never invent this gospel. 
This can't have a human origin. Who would think of that? We love superheroes who win hard. We don't naturally think of heroes who submit to an unjust, unjust death. Now, Peter himself had a hard time accepting this, right? They just can't get their minds around it. It wasn't until after it all happened, the Spirit was given, that everything makes full sense. And then we see the gospel explode in Israel and beyond to the ends of the earth in the book of Acts, once they get it. But here, along with Jesus' disciples, we're being invited to embrace the suffering Christ. That the, the one who is Lord of all died for us. We're being invited to accept that reality. As we see in scripture, Jesus is the creator. He's the sustainer. He is the judge of this world. As the Christ, he is the prophet. He is the priest. He is the king. He is the son of God and the son of man. And as both of those, he is the perfect mediator for us. He goes between us to God as God and he speaks on our behalf as man. Jesus is full of glory, full of grace, full of truth. Scriptures tell us that he is the beautiful one. He is the reigning one. He is the all-powerful one. He is the Alpha and the Omega. And here in this passage, he is transfigured before his disciples. And they get only a glimpse of all the glory and might of Jesus. And yet, this glorious Jesus, the Son of God, the Christ, will submit himself to death. In order to save us from our sin, he will die for our sin. That's why the Christ had to suffer. That's why he had to die. Our greatest problem is not outside of ourselves. We are our biggest problem. We need salvation from ourselves. And if we were going to be saved from ourselves, then this Christ would have to die. He would have to yield his life in death in our place to pay for our death, to give us new life, to welcome us back to God. Our sin that we commit is offensive to the God who has made us. The only way that that can be dealt with is justice being served. And so God himself came to take that upon himself in our place. This is all of God. It is his grace. It is his mercy. You know, God doesn't need us to work hard for him so maybe he can be pleased with us. He's done it all. You know, Psalm 50 says that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. If he had need, he wouldn't come to us. It's not as if we put God in debt to us. He's done everything. This is his mercy that we see in the gospel. Although he doesn't need us, he does love us. And so he sends his son to take care of it all. That we can return. This morning in this passage, as we've seen so many times and so many times in Mark's gospel already, we are invited to embrace 
the suffering Christ. We are invited to believe on him, to trust in him. And if you've not entrusted your soul to this Jesus, I invite you this morning to do that. Commit yourself to him. And if you have entrusted your soul already to this Jesus, then God here is telling us to listen to him. Take the words of Jesus. Take them to your heart. Apply them. Let them come out of you. Heed what God speaks to you through his son. I would like to invite Maggie to come and play. And I'd like to invite the deacon.